You're listening to the Foundation Podcast. This is The Chase, bringing you everything you need to know about policies affecting you, your family, and your community. I'm Andrew Brown. And I'm James Quintero. And welcome to another exciting St. Patrick's Day episode of The Chase. I am Andrew Brown, joined by James Quintero. The one and only. Andrew, I got a question for you. Do I look a little brighter today? You look very bright. You look like you're walking on sunshine. Ooh, well Less done. Less like a human pinata. That's right. <laughs> it is sunshine week. And uh, we are uh, we're celebrating sunshine week, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's a week-long celebration of government transparency and the public's right to know. So we've got some killer information for you today on ways that we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation are working to keep government accountable to the people. James, you're watching some stuff about property taxes, I hear. That's right. In addition to Sunshine Week, we're also keeping an eye on some property tax reform legislation that's coming through the process. We had Senator Paul Bettencourt, who is, of course, one of my favorites, uh, file a laundry list of bills last week aimed at improving the property tax process and the levy itself. And so uh, he's got uh, some bills aimed at uniformity of bond elections, transparency, business personal property value, disaster declaration, loopholes for taxpayers, and more. So that is quite the list. We'll, uh, we're going to uh, gladly support all of those bills and uh, hopefully get some good things done on taxes this session. Andrew, what, what do you got rocking in your world? Hey, we are going after that most exciting of topics, the efficiency audit. So for those of you who don't speak nerd, an efficiency <laughs> audit is different from the regular financial audits that you may be familiar with. A regular financial audit looks just at how money is being spent and if it's being accounted for properly. An efficiency audit goes a step further and it asks the question, are we spending money in the right way? And are we getting the desired results for the investment of the dollars that we're spending? What's really cool about efficiency audits, and I say cool in the nerdiest possible way, is they are able to identify ways to improve services to target populations. And oftentimes that comes at a lower cost to taxpayers once the efficiency audit recommendations are implemented. So there are two bills that we are watching closely. One was heard yesterday in the House Human Services Committee. It was House Bill 1516 by Representative Parker. And that bill would apply the efficiency audit concept to the temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TANF in shorthand. What TANF is, is the most frequently utilized public assistance program or social safety net program out there to help the neediest Texans. Now, it's a block grant, so states have a lot of flexibility in how they use TANF dollars. What that's resulted in over the years is states abusing the TANF program and redirecting taxpayer dollars intended to help the neediest among us to unintended purposes like filling administrative or filling budget gaps, paying for administrative expenses like employee salaries and benefits and other unintended pet projects where they're just kind of redirecting this pot of money away from those who need it most. So what we're hoping with HB 1516 is that efficiency audit will help refocus 
our efforts to help the neediest Texans achieve self-sufficiency and cut down on some of this waste that's quite frankly harming those who uh, need and deserve our help. The other bill we're looking at is House Bill 2374, which I'm hearing may be coming up here pretty soon for a hearing. That takes the efficiency audit concept and applies it to the Department of Family and Protective Services. So it's asking the question, are the services that we're providing to families at risk of having their children removed, services to kids who are in our foster care system, are those actually achieving the best outcomes for those target populations, and are they doing it in the most effective manner possible? Um, I think that's something that's really powerful right now, especially as the entire landscape of child welfare in Texas is changing and we are working on innovating and modernizing our system. The efficiency audit can be a powerful tool that aids in that effort. I'm still a little taken aback that you think there are opportunities to perform more efficiently and find government waste. Are you- You're shocked that I think government could do a better job and in- may not be as effective as it thinks it is. Indeed. So, well, well, uh, you do an excellent work, sir. Uh, you're at the Capitol quite often, which uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully all those COVID tests you're taking are going well. I, I've poked my brain so many times. <laughs> same. Same. Well, speaking of uh, poking one's brain, uh, there's a rumor (laughs) that uh, I'll be in the Ways and Means Committee later, uh, actually uh, next week, early next week, to discuss a bill that would rejigger the property tax calculation in just a little way uh, that is a little bit more taxpayer friendly. That is rejigger a technical legal term. Is that that in the bill? Yes. (laughs) I learned that in school. So, um, Right now, our local budgeteers are tasked to determine what a three and a half percent property tax revenue increase looks like from one year to the next. But in determining that calculation, they kind of leave out a few things. And one of those things being certificates of obligation. I know that sounds really boring. It's incredibly boring, but I think it's incredibly important. So please explain it to the neophytes like me who have no understanding of what. Well, so certificates of obligation uh, are are non-voter approved debt instruments. So your cities and counties can actually go into debt without asking voters for permission. And when they do in this limited fashion, it tends to result in a tax increase. And again, the use of certificates of obligation are not counted towards that three and a half percent limit under current law. And so what the bill author is seeking to do is kind of rope in that element into the three and a half percent limit because it's only right and fair that if it leads to a tax increase, it'd be counted towards the tax limit. But surely cities and localities are abusing this loophole. You you know, I was just looking through some of my notes today, as a matter of fact, and I was reminded of an instance about two or three years ago where Travis County, I believe this was at the end of 2018, actually issued more than $300 million in certificates of obligation to build a new county courthouse. Now, what's controversial about that other than just spending like crazy? Well, just a few years prior to them actually issuing the COs, voters had turned down the county on its bid to get this uh, approved by voters. And so uh, basically, the city waited a, a set number of years and then went ahead and issued COs for an item that voters had already rejected. So 
Very few things shock me in this line of work, but that just shocked me. Yeah, well, uh, there, there's some. Uh, that's not the only case of abuse. Uh, Amarillo was chided last year for actually issuing, I believe it was twenty five million dollars or so worth of CEOs to help build a water park. Um, there's oh, a, there's yes. some other controversial discretionary expenses out there, but. But, you know, it, it's things like that that really call attention to the needs for reform, not only in this fashion, not only for for bringing it within the three and a half percent boundary, but also looking at the tool in total and really, really rejiggering the the system such that, you know, these these ought to be for needs only and not for wants. And I, I think that's where we're starting to get off track is. Our, our local governments are leaning on these tools to get what they want and not what they need. And it's driving everybody's taxes through the roof. Well, that's a noble effort and good luck in closing that loophole. On Thursday night, about 10 o'clock p.m. from what I can tell, the Department of Family and Protective Services quietly released a report. And this was late at night, the night before bill filing deadline, which as you know, nobody's paying attention to anything else other than bill filing. I think there were 957 bills filed on Friday alone. So the Capitol was focused solely on filing bills. It's kind of the opportune time to release news that you would prefer go unnoticed if you're an agency that's regulated by the legislature. And that appears to be just what the Department of Family and Protective Services did because this report that they released late at night before bill filing deadline was a legislatively mandated process evaluation. And then what they were looking into was how is the department doing at efforts to transform our foster care system? So back in 2017, the legislature passed a bill that localized foster care services. Essentially, it takes foster care away from a centralized government in Austin and gives it to local community organizations who operate under a contract with the state, under the supervision of the state. Uh, but the goal there is to make the system more responsive to the needs of kids who enter the system. We call it community-based care because it's based on the idea that local communities know how to care for the most vulnerable in their neighborhoods better than a centralized bureaucracy based in Austin. So over the last four years, the department has been tasked with rolling that out, uh, decreasing their role in foster care and increasing local communities' role in foster care. And this process evaluation was done by Texas Tech University, again, looking at how good of a job is the Department of Family and Protective Services doing at implementing community-based care. And the conclusion from the report is not very good. I'm going to actually quote fr directly from the report. It says, one global impression of implementation was there was a lack of a strategic framework and a lack of explicit operationalized expectations. This created processes that were random, chaotic, and trial and error. So the too long didn't read version of this report is the department's mismanaging implementation of community-based care. But in spite of this, the local communities that are already working and providing the foster care services are continuing to generate better outcomes for kids than were generated under the old centralized state-run system. 
You look like you've got a question, James. Well, you know, I was just actually thinking back to your earlier statement about 957 bills being filed so far. I, I want to let the audience know that I've actually read through 955 of those bills. Because uh, you hate yourself? <laughs> no. Also, by the way, that, that was a really fancy way of saying uh, we really screwed up. Exactly. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, what, what's the solution here? What, uh, how, 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 do, how should the conservative movement take this report and, and uh, effectively weaponize it towards a better system? Yeah. Well, I think the movement should, one, celebrate the achievements of the local communities and the people in their neighborhoods who are stepping up and taking care of kids who are at risk and who are in the foster care system. But two, I think this report is the call that says agencies should not regulate themselves. Agencies should not oversee the reduction of their power and authority. And we need third-party accountability. You know, community-based foster care is the answer to a lot of the problems that are occurring in the child welfare system in Texas, it shouldn't be undercut by a department that's mismanaging implementation. So the good news is that the legislature does appear to be taking this seriously. Senator Lois Kolkhorst, who is the chair of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee, filed Senate Bill 1896, which transfers authority for implementing community-based care away from the department and it gives it to the Health and Human Services Commission. And there's another bill uh, by Representative James Frank that looks at the enacting statute itself for community-based care and works on fixing some of the loopholes that the department has taken advantage of to not implement the way that the legislature intended for it to be implemented. So there is activity going on at the legislature already. I think the public should get behind those efforts to push the department to finish the job of localizing foster care services so that it can be more responsive, more compassionate, and actually do the job that it's supposed to do, which is protecting and caring for kids. Well, well said, my friend. Well said. Um, speaking of something totally unrelated, <laughs> so, uh, for some, something completely different uh i just want to put a plug in for my colleague miss shelby sterling who's actually going to be uh going into the natural resources and economic development committee tomorrow talking about the benefit of moving TURS, which are uh transportation investment uh, uh trans transportation infrastructure reinvestment zones uh and, and moving that governmental entity into the uh, uh, the category of open media, those that are subject to the open meetings laws. And so uh, I think she's going to do a terrific job. Clearly, she knows much more about it than I do. She's going to basically be arguing for government transparency uh, and, and uh, looking forward to seeing what she has to say on that. Well, good luck to Shelby. She does incredible work. Um, that brings us to the big news. Get ready, producer Crystal. It is Sunshine Week. <laughs> I feel like this this uh, particular device was a uh, worthy investment. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so that's right. It's Sunshine Week, folks. And uh, again, what that means is it's a week-long celebration of government transparency and the public's right to know. So what are we doing this week and this session? Let me, let me cover those two issues here briefly. 
this week uh, on Thursday, we're going to be hosting a uh, online policy discussion talking about Sunshine Week, its importance, and what kind of legislation we'd like to see out of this uh, uh, latest legislature. And so joining me tomorrow is going to be Kelly Shannon from the Freedom of Information Foundation of Texas, Representative Gio Capriglione, and Donis Baggett from the Texas Press Association. So each have uh, just a wealth of knowledge to share with the audience uh, I'm much like uh, everyone else. I'm going to get a chance to learn what exactly is uh, on their priority list and what we ought to be looking out for. And of course, uh, Representative Capriglione is no stranger to this issue. He actually helped muscle through some of the most significant transparency laws and reforms uh, during the last legislative session that we've seen in quite some time. So uh, he's well versed on this issue. I think comes at it from an excellent perspective and uh, has some really big things on tap. So. Again, that's this week, Thursday from 12 to 1. We're going to be hosting an online primer with some really talented folks. I hope everyone can join us for that. How could people join online if they were interested? Uh, you know, for uh, all these technology-related questions, I have to lean on uh, producer Crystal to... TexasPolicy.com slash events. There you go. See? <laughs> TexasPolicy.com. I love throwing her those curveballs. We do need to get you a microphone. That's right. Although I like the way it sounds when you're just like screaming from across the room. <laughs> so, so that's this week. This session, where does the uh, foundation see uh, see some opportunities to advance open government? Um, well, before we get into that, let me let me kind of set the stage a little bit because over the last twelve months, we've we've seen a little bit of an erosion of the, the public's right to access information and data. And what I mean is that when COVID first hit, you had a, a basically a, a system-wide lockdown in many ways where the public was denied access to information and data. And uh, so, you know, for example, uh, my good friend Rob Henneke, who's up on four and loves to sue people, he submitted a Public Information Act request to the city of Dallas and was basically told, look, we have a skeleton crew on staff. Our administrative offices are closed. And because of that, uh, we're not going to be able to respond to your Public Information Act request in any timely way. In fact, it took several months. I, I think Rob may still be waiting upstairs uh, in skeleton form <laughs> waiting for the response. So, um, you know, it, it's instances like that, not just in Dallas, but effectively in every large urban area where you saw uh, the public being uh, disallowed from, from seeing data and information. And why, why does that matter? Well, at its most basic level, you need transparency in order to hold people accountable. I feel like that's especially important when you're in the middle of an emergency, like we've been in for the last 10 years, 20 years. That's I don't know how long this has gone on. <laughs> That's absolutely right. We've had a lot of closed door decision making and unresponsive governments. And unfortunately, it's, it's left the public out in the dark. So what, what we're urging the, our friends at the legislature to do is to enact some really good, strong reforms that will help open things back up and push us in a direction to where uh, folks can learn and understand what their government officials are doing. Here's one small item. This is this is in the direction of, of open government. It's actually uh, a little bit of a, a frustration of mine that existed pre-COVID, but but I think it's still important. One of your in, many grievances. One of many. I have many. You know, when it comes to local governments, good gracious. So <laughs> we, 
sometimes when, when you submit, when you as a requester submit a Public Information Act request, what you'll ask for is, let's say, a data set. You know, I like numbers. And so sometimes I'll ask for uh, information contain, contained in an Excel spreadsheet. And uh, my friends at the local level will oftentimes send me back a non-searchable PDF of the Excel oh, file. Right? So you're reading through every little it's, it's number. Basically, I have to go through and using that PDF, go and re-input the data into an Excel file which takes time and effort, and it's just a headache. And so what, uh, what SB 928 and HB uh, 1810 seek to do uh, is basically say, look, local governments, if a requester comes to you and politely asks for an Excel file and you have it handy, go ahead and give him that, him or her that Excel file. You don't need to change the format or do something weird to it so that it's not searchable or sortable, right? Very basic. But, but again, you know, this, this existed pre-COVID and it's, it's just gotten worse, even though we, have, we all have a little bit more time in our hands with the, the COVID lockdowns. It, it, it's still an irritation and I think it's uh, ripe for reform. Here's a bigger one, though. Uh, and this goes back to some of the COVID concerns. Under, under normal, in normal times, right, you as a, as a interested party would submit a public information act request to your governmental entity asking for, I don't know how many pencils they bought that year, right? Under, under current law, they should respond in a 10 business day time period, right? So it doesn't count weekends or holidays, but right. 10 Makes business sense. days, right? That's what they should have been doing. But they, a, a lot of these guys use some guidance put forward by the attorney general's office that relaxed some of the standards and basically said, if you have a, a skeleton crew basically in place and most of your workforce is not at the office and your administrative offices are closed, then that 10 business day time limit is basically put on hold, Right. And I think you can make a reasonable argument that at the outset of the pandemic, perhaps some of these restrictions were, you know, were fair enough. Right. But here we are about a year later, in fact, exactly one year later from the issuance of that uh, initial executive order. And you have some, and albeit it's, it's a very few number now, but there are some local governments who are still using that attorney general guidance to basically deny the public the ability to access information. So they interpreted, we'll give you a little bit more time to respond as you don't have to respond. Exactly. So it might be safe to say the government is ghosting you. Ooh. <laughs> look, look at that. She does We need do need to get her a mic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, what uh, Senate Bill 925 and HB 1416 basically seek to do is to clarify the definition of a business day. And then also put some reasonable uh, limitations in place on government's ability to indefinitely, indefinitely ignore PIA requests, right? This is, this is trying to get us back to a place of, of reasonableness and accessibility. Uh, and, I, and I think it is worthy of consideration because, again, for a long time, local governments were denying the public the right to access data that was theirs. And... You know what? A few months ago, we I think we had an, a primer in October, 
And I did something kind of fun at the time. I, I went back through uh, some of the budgets of the larger cities just to see, because a lot of those guys had just adopted their budgets. And I wanted to see, okay, you guys have been denying people the right to uh, submit PIAs and get a response back. Let me just check and see, have you been growing your budgets from, from that year to the next? And sure enough, three of the five had actually increased the size of their budget from FY 2020 to FY 2021. And I don't know why, <laughs> because <laughs> they weren't working. And, and, and so it's just, it's stuff like that, that I, I think, you know, the public's uh, uh, um, trying to get a handle on, we're trying to get a handle on, folks at the legislature are trying to get a ha handle on it. I think we're getting closer and closer um, as we get through this legislative session. People get it. We need government transparency. And without it, there's no ability for us to hold local officials accountable. Well, that's a good word. And I can't tell you how impressed. I don't know if impressed is the right word, but it is kind of impressive the level of trickery that local governments and bureaucracies will go through to not be held accountable to the public. And I appreciate that you're out there fighting the good fight for accountability and transparency. You're, you're absolutely right. There's a level of creativity that I thought unimaginable until I got into the world. Of, like I'm not even mad, I'm impressed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it, it's just a matter of, of turning that creativity towards better ends. There we go. And that's where we'll leave it this week. Thank you all for joining us for The Chase. Have a great week.